All right, so just a reminder, that is page 100, and we're going to be reading Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 through 38. That's the whole thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant Law in it, and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table, and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand, and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law, and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it, and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him, so that he may serve me as a priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father, so that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout the generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. He placed the lampstand at the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. 
For if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Do you keep your Bibles open? We're going to be looking at this passage together. Now, did you hear that our future king was in Moss Side a couple of weeks ago? Did you know that? Prince William was here in Moss Side. So a while ago, at a garden party in Buckingham Palace, he'd met a woman who runs a food bank in Moss Side, and she had invited him to come and see her and the work she was doing and come to the Rastafarian HQ on Claremont Road. Um, and so he made good on his promise. He came a couple of weeks ago. He was in Manchester at the same time as Sir Bobby Charlton's funeral, um, and he went and visited this, this woman down on Claremont Road. And so there was a, a bit of a hoo-ha, there were a number of people around, and uh, there was a bit of chat about this on our student WhatsApp group. Uh, quite a bit of excitement at the thought of the prince being around, and one of our students uh, hadn't realized that he was here, but when she heard, she dropped everything, went down to uh, Claremont Road, and managed to get a selfie with her future king. How amazing. Uh, now, I wonder what you would do to be able to get close to your favorite celebrity, um, I was reading about uh, how intrepid Taylor Swift's fans are, particularly uh, in Argentina. So um, on Taylor Swift's world tour, she was playing a number of uh, dates, one in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And that was last month in November. There had been Taylor Swift fans camping at the, at the uh, stadium where she was going to play since June since June. And what would happen is there was this entire system. So the fans, they would um, kind of be in a rotation system, um, camping there for various amounts of time, um, all in the hope of being first in line to get into the, into the concert when it, when it was open. There were administrators who were logging the amount of time that people were staying in the tents. Um, and those who'd spent the longest time in the tents camping had a better chance of being at the front of the queue. So all the tickets were general admission, but if you're at the front of the queue, you've got more chance of being able to get to the front row uh, when Taylor was, was performing. Now, this was at the football stadium of River Plate, who were one of the big Argentines. And what happened was, on match days, they had to build a barrier around the Swifties as all the fans were coming in and out of the, uh, of the stadium. So it was serious commitment to the cause to get close to Taylor. And that's the thing about people of status, isn't it? People who are celebrities, people who are high-impact individuals, they have this ability, this magnetism to draw others to them. People will go to great lengths to be near them. And, and some go to great lengths to be near God, who is surely, if he exists, um, the greatest, most high-status being in the universe. Think about all the things people do religiously to get close to God. They fast, they meditate, they may take hallucinogenic drugs. They travel far away to um, make pilgrimage to a holy site somewhere. Some will dedicate their lives to charity, to philanthropy, to do good works, all in the hope they can get close to the divine. And yeah, it's interesting, because when you read the Bible and you think about the Christian story, it works a little bit differently. Now, it tells that there, 
of a god who does exist. Does this mic need a, a replacement battery? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the Bible, it talks about there being a god who is unspeakably wonderful. He's the most glorious being in the universe. He's the source of all things, the principle of all life and love and goodness. But not only is he, is he kind of up there and abstract and transcendent, he's personal. He knit you in your own mother's womb. That's what the Bible says. He's up close with us. He knows us more than anyone else. He's worthy of all worship and glory. And you would think, reading the Bible, its emphasis would be on how we can work to get close to the divine, but the Bible tells a different story. It is more concerned about the fact that God has gone to great efforts to get close to us. He is the high-status individual. He is the high-impact. I mean, celebrity is not a right word for it, is it? It would be to diminish his glory. And yet he is the one taking the initiative, making the efforts to come close to us. He literally pinched, uh, pitched his tent um, to come close to us. And we see this tent in Exodus 40. It's called the tabernacle. Tabernacle. So we're going to think about the tabernacle this morning. We're finishing our series in Exodus. It's been a wild ride. Hope you've enjoyed it. But the main message as we finish here this morning is, is simply this. God wants to be near you. He wants to be near you. And he's gone to great lengths to do that. So let's have a look um, at the tabernacle then. Firstly, the meaning of the tabernacle. The meaning of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle actually takes up a big chunk of Exodus, more than you might think. About a third of the whole book is dedicated to describing the tabernacle, what goes in it, how it should be um, served by the priesthood, etc. And we only have one sermon to talk about it, which is a bit of a shame. Um, you should blame the person who created the series. But that's me, so, you know, it's on me. But the basic thing about the tabernacle is this. God has told Moses to build this tent so that God can dwell with the people. This tabernacle has special sec sections to it. It has special items that are to be put in it. But basically, the tent was to go with the people. The Israelites, at this point, they are journeying through the wilderness. They are living in tents. They're moving and then having to pitch their tents at various places along the way. And what would happen was, they'd pitch all their tents as a big nation, but right in the center would be this tabernacle. God would be right in the center of the people. This tabernacle would be a forerunner to the temple. The temple would be a kind of bricks and mortar, more permanent version of the tabernacle. But what is it all about? You'll have seen, just reading chapter 40, that there is various items that go in the tabernacle, various details. What is all, all of that about? Well, we can't go through everything in detail, but big picture, for us to understand the tabernacle, we have to go right back to the beginning of the Bible. We have to go to Genesis 1 and 2. And so we won't turn there, but let me just set the scene for you at this beginning of the Bible story. In the beginning, God creates the world. He makes it perfect. And in this world he makes, he sets apart a special sacred space, a garden that is called Eden. Eden also means paradise. God makes paradise on earth. 
And he puts our first parents, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in that garden. Now, this is the most incredible garden, okay? Better than, you know, RHS Bridgewater down the road. Have you ever seen the Great British Bake Off, you know, the tents in that lovely garden? It's even better than that, okay? Imagine lots of vegetation and plants, uh, diverse colors, trees everywhere, exotic fruits. It's a place of great beauty. It filled all of the senses. It's perfect. And the Bible elsewhere describes Eden as the garden of God. God's garden. He would walk in that garden, and it was there as a place where humanity could dwell with him. Walk alongside God, speak with him, serve him, enjoy him. That is why we were created as human beings, to dwell with this God. That is the meaning of life. So Adam and Eve are are given the garden. They're to work in it. They're to serve God. They're to be his royal representatives. They're like the king and queen of creation under God. And so they are to find purpose and fulfillment in knowing this God and serving him in his garden. And they're free to enjoy the garden. They can lie in the grass. They can sunbathe. They can climb the trees. They can eat from all the fruits. But God just gives them one single restriction. They are not to eat the fruit of one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives them that command because it gives Adam and Eve an opportunity to express their trust in him. If they don't eat from the fruit, then it shows that they love him and trust him. But of course, they disobey. They don't trust God. They disobey his command. They eat of the fruits, and everything falls apart. Adam and Eve's relationship deteriorates, but more seriously, their relationship with God, the fellowship that they have enjoyed, falls apart. They don't trust him. They disobey him. Sin enters the world, and they are then driven out of paradise out of the garden, and they cannot come back. There is an entrance to Eden. We read in Genesis 3 that they, once they are driven out of the the garden, there are two angelic beings called cherubim who guard the, the entrance to Eden, so they cannot come back in. They are in exile. Paradise is broken, and mankind is cut off from its creator. Now, what has all this got to do with the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle is built and designed to remind us of Eden. Now, not all the details are in this particular passage, but you can see it elsewhere. A few little things. First of all, the entrance to the tabernacle is on the east, the same way that the Garden of Eden was. There is various garden imagery in the tabernacle. So, for example, the lampstand that is referenced in chapter 40 is described as having branches. It is tree-like. The priests who are called to work in the tabernacle, it says they're called to work and guard it, which is the same language that Adam was called to do regarding the Garden of Eden. So Adam is kind of like a priest in Eden, and the priests work in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like Eden. Exodus 25 verse 8 says this, when God commands the tabernacle to be built, he says, have them make a sanctuary for me 
and I will dwell among them. Just as God walked in Eden with Adam and Eve, he is to live in some limited but real way with the people in the tabernacle. And perhaps the the clearest way we can see a reference to Eden, um, here's a picture taken from the ESV study Bible, a kind of depiction of what the tabernacle may have looked like as far as we can tell from the descriptions. Um, You'll see that at the back of the tabernacle there is this special section. You can see half of a purple curtain there. So the tabernacle was in two major compartments. When you go in, you have the holy place. But then behind this big purple curtain there was what's called the most holy place. And this most holy place was strictly off limits, except for once a year when the high priest could go in. But other than that, you could not enter it. And in that holy place, there was a big golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments on stone that Moses had received from Sinai. But interestingly, there's this, and it's described in chapter 40 as well, that the the Ark of the Covenant has what's called an atonement cover. And in other translations, it's called a mercy seat. It's like a seat. And so the, the Ark of the Covenant is kind of like a throne for God. So the most holy place is the throne room. It is where God in a special way dwells. And you can never go in, except for one priest once a year. Now, the most holy place, as I say, is blocked off by a curtain, and there are pictures embroidered on that curtain. What is it that's embroidered on the curtain? Pictures of cherubim. So in the same way as cherubim guard Eden, cherubim also guard the most holy place. And you can't get in most of the time. So what is this tabernacle doing? It's providing a dwelling place where God can live with his people. But it also conjures up the imagery of Eden. And it's supposed to make the Israelites wistful for the good old days when paradise was on earth and humanity could dwell with God. One of my favorite films is a film called Collateral, um, starring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And Jamie Foxx plays a cab driver in Los Angeles. And he kind of finds his job a bit of a grind. You know, he's, he's got to drive around in the smog all day. Um, he, has, he takes fares. He's got stuck in traffic. He has people who's in the, in the back kind of arguing. But he has a dream to get out of Los Angeles. Because what he wants to do is he wants to start a special cab firm in the Maldives. And what he does is he has this photo of the Maldives that he keeps behind his sun visor. And any time... He gets stressed at work, he's stuck in traffic, he's annoyed by people who are in the car. He just flicks down the sun visor and he looks at that picture of this beautiful exotic island in the Maldives and he kind of escapes there. His hope is to go there, that's the dream. He keeps the dream alive. And that's what the tabernacle does for the Israelites. It keeps the dream of Eden alive. Humanity has been banished from God's presence in paradise. But the tabernacle represents in some way a move forward. Perhaps paradise can be regained. And all this imagery of Eden helps remind the Israelites and point them perhaps to a future where they will dwell with God fully once more. 
paradise lost may one day be paradise regained. It's a spark of hope. Okay, well, that's the, the meaning of the tabernacle. Let's get into the actual drama of the text we have in front of us there, Exodus 40, the filling of the tabernacle. Now, um, what's happened so far in Exodus is God has given his instructions for all the, the aspects of the tabernacle to be built. And there are things that need to go in it, the items, um, gold needs to be melted down to create all these various things. And all of these materials have been brought together. They've got all the timber for the frames. They've got all the gold. It's like, you know, you've got some Ikea flat pack furniture and you've opened it up and you've got everything out and you've checked you've got your Allen keys and your bolts and enough to make everything, but it's not been constructed yet. And then at the beginning of chapter 40, um, construction begins. Set up the tabernacle, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses. The tent of meeting and so the tabernacle is built. All of the things are put in place as they should be. Now, it says that Moses built the tabernacle. I mean, he did in the sense that he oversaw the operation. It wasn't probably just him uh, with a hammer. He'd probably be there a very long time. But the tabernacle is constructed. And do you notice, like, the precision that is needed to build this thing? Verse 16, it says... Moses did everything as the Lord commanded him. And that is um, repeated throughout the passage, that little phrase of verse 19, verse 21, verse 25, verse 26, verse 28, verse 32, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. There's very specific instructions. You can't get it wrong. God wants things just so. Why is that? Well, it's because he has an eye for detail. Not because he's pedantic or stuffy, but every aspect of the tabernacle has purpose. It has to be just right. And it teaches the Israelites that when you come to God and when you deal with him, you've got to do things on his terms, not on yours. If God is going to dwell with the Israelites, they have to take that very, very seriously. So God's house cannot be built by cowboy builders. Attention needs to be given to it so that it is fitting as a place where God's presence will dwell. And so it's all done. Everything is put in the right place, the base and the frame, the curtains, the coverings, the ark and the altar, it's all put together. It's consecrated with oil. And then end of verse 3, um, Is it verse 3? I think it's not. So Moses finished the work. Um, And it says there, not verse 3, sorry, verse um, 33, 33. And Moses finished the work. And you'll see at the end of verse 33, you've got paragraph break in our um, Bibles. And then it starts a new section. But there isn't a new section in the original Hebrew text. It goes straight on to the next verse. So we get told straight away, when Moses finishes the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You'll remember from um, previous weeks, we've seen that God's glory was shown in this cloud, this mysterious cloud and fire that followed the people around. And what happens is, as soon as Moses finishes building the tabernacle, this cloud fills it. Now, the, the, the cloud is like a, a 
a manifestation of God's presence, a visible one. Now, God lives everywhere. He is omnipresent in that sense. He can't be just reduced to one particular place in space and time. But God chooses to manifest himself in special ways at various points. And so visibly, in sight of all the people, God moves into his house. The cloud fills the tabernacle. What a sight that must have been if you were an Israelite. You see this cloud fill this house that you and your people have spent time working on to build. God has moved in. Now, this had been the plan since the Um, the law had been given on Mount Sinai. Um, Israel had entered into a covenant with um, God, and it was kind of like a marriage ceremony. So the Lord had taken Israel to be his wife. They would be his people. He would be their God. They even make vows like in a marriage. The laws are given, and the people say, we will. And then the plans for the tabernacle are made. So it's as if, you know, once the Lord and Israel have had their marriage, they move in together. The tabernacle is there in the midst of the camp. But you'll remember from a few weeks ago that everything went wrong. Because just as Moses was at the summit of Sinai, the people of Israel created an idol, a golden calf. And this was um, completely against what God had commanded Um, They'd only just received God's commands not to create images, and they created this image. They were unfaithful to God's laws straight away. And this was an act of spiritual adultery. One Old Testament scholar suggests that for the Israelites to have made this golden calf at the time that they did, it was like committing adultery on your wedding night. Absolutely disastrous. And there was a whole period of time where there was anger with the Israelites. And it wasn't clear whether God was going to stay with his people. So if you fast forward to this chapter, Exodus 40, you're building this tabernacle, you're pulling it together. You might sort of think, is God actually going to come and dwell dwell in it? But what happens? The glory of the Lord, as soon as the tabernacle is made, fills, fills it. One commentator suggests it's as if God can't wait to move in with his people. The scaffolding's barely come down, and he's already got the front door key, and he's moved in. What does this communicate to the Israelites? All is forgiven. All is forgiven. And the golden calf incident can be left in the past. And so if you're an Israelite at this time, and you're seeing that cloud enter the tent, there's a sense of wonder But there's also a sense of relief. The Lord is with us. He's not abandoned us. We can still dwell with him. And so this is how it would be as Israel journeyed through the desert, verses 36 um, to 38. The Lord would be in his tabernacle, and when the cloud lifted, that was the sign that the the whole camp would move. And then the Lord would lead and journey with them. And there's a simple principle here for us. God is willing to draw near even to those who have been unfaithful. Do you see that? You know, a few years ago, I randomly bumped into a friend at Oxford Road train station. I'd not seen him in years, Christian friend. We decided to go for a drink 
we caught up, we discussed old times. But then the discussion and conversation turned to how he was doing spiritually. And he said to me, Jez, it feels like there's a barrier between me and God. He's a Christian. And maybe you feel similar. But the drama of the tabernacle being filled with the Lord's presence shows us that if there is a barrier that you are aware of between you and God, God is willing to overcome that barrier. He is willing to dwell with you. He still wants to come close to you. If he's willing to do that with the Israelites, he's willing to do that with you as well. The filling of the tabernacle. Finally then, the limits of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to imagine that an A-list celebrity is moving onto your street. Prince William, Taylor Swift, Pete Horlock, you know, someone really famous. Now, to have them move onto your road is not quite the same as you having access to them, is it? Okay, you know, you think about celebrities. They live in huge houses. They have lots of security measures, electronic gates, high walls. And part of the point of that is to keep people out. It's to maintain some level of privacy. You know, if Prince William decided to move onto my street, I couldn't just pop round for a cup of sugar. Proximity is not the same as full access. Do you see that? And it's the same with the tabernacle. Now, it, it is incredibly significant that the Lord would move into his house to be with the people. That is huge. That is huge. The Lord has come close to his people, but the doors are locked. We see that in verse 35. Do you notice the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, and it says, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. Now, if you've been reading Exodus so far, this should come as a bit of a surprise. Like, Moses can't go in. If there was ever one person who could get into the presence of God if no one else could, it was Moses. If you remember, again, when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, God revealed himself on the mountain. There was thunder and lightning. There were loud noises. There was an earthquake. The people were terrified. They were told, don't come near the mountain. Don't touch it, because if you do, you'll die. And yet Moses could go on behalf of the people. This mysterious language. We're told that he, he walks into the thick darkness the manifestation of God's presence. He goes behind the curtain, as it were. He has unprecedented access to God's presence. But even here, Moses cannot go in. Why? Commentators suggest that this is a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the book of Exodus. How are we going to have access to God's presence? It's called the tent of meeting. How can it be a tent of meeting if no one can go in? Well, if you were to flick over to Leviticus, the beginning of Leviticus helps point the way to how this tension will be resolved. Because what do we get at the beginning of Leviticus? Instructions about offerings or sacrifices. And it is when the first sacrifices are made in the, t in the tabernacle that Moses and Aaron can then go in. Access can come through sacrifice. But even then, the tabernacle has its limits. 
So the most holy place will always be pretty much inaccessible most of the time. Like Eden after the fall, the barrier is still there. Cherubim still guard the way to God's presence. And the tabernacle, it reminds us of Eden, doesn't it? But it's not Eden. It's a tent. It doesn't hold a candle to the paradise and garden that God had created in the beginning. And so even though the tabernacle is like a step forward in human divine relations, it falls far short of paradise. The doors to God's presence remain locked. And this is a tension that it takes the rest of the Bible to resolve. This tabernacle theme is rich in the Bible. It it comes up in so many ways. So the tabernacle becomes the temple, as I've already said. But then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, we're told um, in John's gospel that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. And it says, we have seen his glory Nancy Guthrie, who was writing on this, she says this, once again, the glory of God had descended to dwell among his people, but this time he came not in the form of cloud and fire, but flesh and blood. You could see, you could walk with the glory of God if you walked, and, walked with and saw Jesus. Jesus tells us that one greater of the, than the temple is here, referring to himself. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. And through his work on the cross, the tabernacle theme develops even further. As he um, sacrifices himself on the cross, what happens in the temple? The curtain that divides the holy from the most holy place is torn in two. There is a way back into God's presence, that tells us. It also tells us that the temple is now defunct. The days of tabernacles and temples are gone once Jesus has died and risen again. What comes in its place then before Jesus returns? Well, the church. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. The church is corporately God's temple. And individually in Christians, The glory of God dwells in us because the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. Our very bodies are temples, houses for God's Spirit. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So God dwells in us, and that's astonishing. He's changing us to be more like Jesus, and we have his power and his presence wherever we go. But even that, as glorious as it is, is not quite Eden, is it? It has limits. We can't commune with God the way we would like to, the way we're designed to. Prayer can sometimes be frustrating. God can sometimes seem silent. Sin is still in the world. So we still long for Eden. Paradise is not here yet. But it will be one day. Skip forward to Revelation 21 and 22. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place 
is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. And then in the next chapter, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Where we are heading, Christian brothers and sisters, is Eden. Eden restored. Actually, Eden improved. There's um, references there to trees and gardens and rivers, just like there was in Eden. The eternal state will be God dwelling without barrier with his people. As Adam and Eve dwelt in paradise, so will all Christians with Jesus. We will see him face to face. We'll walk with him, serve him, and enjoy him. Just being in his presence will light us up. That's the destiny of all those who trust in Christ. No more sin, no more curse. Happiness and joy forever. Now for us now, we can enjoy the Lord Jesus. We can worship him and sing to him. We can pray to him. We can read Um, his word and hear from him but on that day when we go to the new creation the transformation it will be like seeing someone face to face when the only way you've interacted with them before is on a zoom call with the cameras turned off we will behold the lord jesus in his glory what am i trying to say with all of this this is all god's initiative this is what he wants for you His desire is that you would join him in his kingdom. He is going to open up the front gates to his mansion. He will welcome you into his house. He will feed you at his table. He does so now, but he will do so in a fulfilled, um, glorious way. Then, he wants to welcome you in. Now, for some of us, that might be hard to believe at the moment that God actually wants us. We think about our sins. We think about our failures, our inconsistencies, uh, the things that make us feel guilty. As Christians, we're aware, we've seen, haven't we, that our bodies are to be houses for the Holy Spirit. And we sort of feel like we may not have been good landlords. There may be still mold on the walls. We've not updated all the kitchen appliances. Because we're sinners, aren't we? How can the the Holy Spirit live inside me with all of my sins and brokenness? We may feel like we've just desecrated holy space (laughs) if our bodies are temples. Does God want me? Remember Exodus 40, as soon as that tabernacle is ready, God's presence rushes in, in the cloud. He can't wait to dwell with his people, even a people who had been unfaithful a few chapters earlier. 
It's still on. He still cares. All was forgiven. How could it be forgiven? Well, because they'd had a mediator in Moses. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. But how much more us? You know, God wants to dwell with you so much that he himself became a mediator. He bridged the gap so that he could dwell with us. He didn't need a third party. In the person of Jesus, God himself makes the way so that we can be with him. Jesus came and the tabernacle of his body was torn down on the cross to deal with our sins and rebuilt three days later in the resurrection. So you would know his willingness to dwell with you. That is his desire. If there are barriers between you and God, those barriers can come down. He's willing. All we have to do is come to Jesus, own our failings in humility, own where we've gone astray, but there is forgiveness available. He wants to dwell with us. So that picture in Revelation 21 of the new creation, he wants that for you if you'll come to him. The most important being in all the universe wants to dwell with you. Believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have created a way through the Lord Jesus back to Eden and to something better than Eden. We thank you, Lord, for the the words on Jesus' lips to that fellow criminal on the cross that today he said, you will be with me in paradise and we will be with Christ in paradise one day. Lord, we thank you so much that you are willing to draw near to us that you are the one who's made that effort. You've bridged the cap. For some reason, you want to be close to us. Lord, help us to remember that. Father, for those of us here who are doubting that, who are burdened by their sins and failings, who don't believe that you care about them and love them, that the gospel message is good news for them now, Lord, have mercy on us. And may we delight in your desire to be close to us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.